Good evening. All right, I know everybody can hear me. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 5. As you're turning there, I have an excerpt I'd actually like to read to everyone. The excerpt reads, The time is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the Helper and Redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter into the Church of Christ. So spoke German pastor Hermann Gruner. Another pastor in the 1930s put it more clearly. It's that Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. Hitler appeared to be the nation's answer to prayer, at least to most Germans, yet one exception was young theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, was, uh, who determined not only to refute this idea, but also to topple Hitler, even if it meant killing him. And so as Bonhoeffer would graduate from theological studies in the University of Berlin uh, later on, Hitler would rise to power. Uh, he became Chancellor of Germany in January of 1933 and then President just a year and a half later. We, we kind of know the history of that. Uh, and as Hitler's anti-Semitic rhetoric and actions intensified, so did his opposition, which included young Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Together with a few other people in Nazi Germany, they organized a church called their Confessing Church, which announced publicly in Nazi Germany in the 1930s its Barman Declaration of Allegiance first to Jesus Christ. So in the meantime, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as this was all happening, he's written a book in 1937 called The Cost of Discipleship, a call to more faithful and radical obedience to Christ and a severe rebuking of comfortable Christianity, stating things such as cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. We'll come back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer as we kind of look to close here uh, our, with our time this evening, but um, I'm trying to Find it. Is there a clock in here? No? Okay, well. Okay, there we go. Okay. <laughs> and I left my phone in the pew, so there no, whatever. Um, good evening. Uh, you know, Terry introduced me and whatnot. Uh, many of you probably don't know me. Uh, you, we, I'm sure, you know, in, in the COC, there's a lot of connections that we can probably make. Um, I, it's kind of interesting the, the amount of people you can probably know and find just through uh, indirect connections, and so uh, I've always thought that was really commendable. Um, but you know, you may not know me, and I may not know you, and that's okay. That, that's all right. Um, but I, I do want to get a show of hands. How many of you have grown up in church your entire life? You were raised in church. Wow. Okay, that's a lot. Good. Okay. So, um, church has become family, right? Church is family. That means all the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? So if you've grown up in church your entire life, I have. I remember my grandmother, um, she's unfortunately battling stage four breast cancer right now, um, but as I've gotten to have some Bible studies with her um, over the last few months, she actually went back and showed me uh, as we were kind of sitting in the bed reading the Bible, she showed me, she said, Todd Ryan, look, I still have in faded pencil the date of your first church service. It wasn't even a month after I was born. It was January 2nd of 2000. I'd been born December 15th, just before that. And so I've been a church kid my entire life. And, and as I've grown up in church, I've been thankful for it because I've, I've been led to follow Jesus. I've been encouraged to follow Jesus. I've been inspired, you know, not, I've not been inspired, but I've been led to the inspiration of the scriptures, and I've been very thankful for that. 
but oftentimes that does come with its own challenges growing up in church. And so I, some of the biggest challenges that I've found in the church has been, that, at least to my faith, has been that of traditionalism, where people, we kind of tend to elevate the traditions that we follow over that of the scriptures. Uh, that tends to play a part in our faith. We also tend to sometimes deal with some legalism, right? And so, as the Pharisees would, if, the, if this is just kind of the line right here of scripture, uh, the Pharisees, in a sense, would have stepped back a few steps and said, drawing a line in the sand, this is the line now, and so we're now gonna hold everyone to this standard. It's a very narrow-minded approach, and so uh, the Word of God becomes a rule book as opposed to uh, how to know our Creator, right? Uh, it's just this difference in approach, and, and one of the biggest ones that I find, at least around uh, people my age and, and around uh, my um, people at school and whatnot, has been that of the moralistic deism uh, approach. And so if you approach scripture as if you're gonna be, try to be as good as you can be to earn God's favor and acceptance, I think we've missed the point, right? Because with that, sometimes we teach this idea that as long as I'm good enough, as long as I don't drink, uh, as long as I don't have sex before marriage, as long as I don't you know, kinda go and party on the weekends, I can kinda blend in with the crowd and kinda be okay. That's kind of been the narrative we've told our young people. Am, am I right? Generally, yeah, okay. Um, to that point, I would have to argue and contend that that is the opposite of the gospel. It's, it's, because moralistic deism in, in our culture today, as long as you work hard, do good things, God will bless you and he'll love you, but if you don't do that, then you're gonna, then you deserve anything that comes your way. That's the backwards narrative of the gospel. It's, it's not this idea that if you, you work, you'll be rewarded, it, or if you do good, you'll be rewarded. It's this idea that you'll be, you're rewarded first in, that, in order to do good, right? And so I, I just want to kind of lay on the table this evening for us, ask the question, as the title suggests, what does the radical call of Jesus require of me, and what does it require of you? What does it really mean to answer the radical call of Jesus in our life? If Jesus is standing out before us this evening and he's inviting us to follow him more faithfully, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? I don't know if it occurred to you, but Jesus did not die so that I could sit in the pew three times a week and feel good about myself. Uh, Jesus did not die under the hand of Pontius Pilate so that I could sit in a recliner, sit back, watch Fox News or CNN, and then complain about the way the country was going. Jesus did not die so that I could live the American dream. Jesus did not die so that I could look down upon others who think differently or believe differently than me. And most importantly, one of the more important things is that Jesus did not die so that I could celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade in this country and then blatantly refuse to help out adoption agencies. America desperately needs the radical call of Jesus. And so what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for the world? And so a uh, modern example, I, I just bring up Dietrich Bonhoeffer because in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, I believe this man, though we may not agree with him so much theologically, uh, I, I believe we can agree with him in practical uh, practicality, right? And, and so as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would uh, defy the government authorities in order to follow Jesus and lead people to the cross and the empty tomb, I believe we can do the same today. And so that's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter five. Uh, it was just read a few moments ago. 
Luke chapter 5. We won't read the whole thing just right now, but again, Jesus is at the point in his ministry where he's about to radically call his apostles on the Sea of Galilee, and, and the, the word that Scripture uses is the Lake of Gennesaret, okay? And so I'm just going to call it the Sea of Galilee because it's the same thing. It's just another name for it. Um, and so Jesus is walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, a great crowd presses in on him to hear the word of God. And so he's kind of landlocked, and we know Jesus can walk on water, but he's not about to do that miracle yet. And so he comes up on Simon Peter uh, washing his net, and so he gets into Simon Peter's boat, puts off from the land a little bit. Great crowds come up to the edge of the water, and Jesus begins to teach and to preach uh, from sitting in the boat. And he, he projects his voice over the water as if it's a first-century microphone. And, and so as Jesus begins to teach and to preach to the crowds, he finishes, and as he does, he does something very famously. He turns from the great crowds, and he turns and directs his attention now towards the individual, and that individual is we, what we know as Simon Peter. And so Jesus says something very profound to Simon Peter. He says, Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, what was Peter you can speak. Fisherman, right? What is Jesus raised as? Carpenter, right? Okay, so Jesus the carpenter is telling Peter the fisherman how to fish. And so I imagine Peter is a little dumbfounded with the crowd watching all this happening. And, and, and so Peter's like, Jesus, you just remodeled my kitchen last week. How are you going to tell me how to fish the Sea of Galilee? Right? Uh, and so, but notice Peter's obedience here. Verse 5, he says, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, the King James Version uses nevertheless. It says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the nets. And so this is really profound, really odd, because Peter, as someone who's fished the Sea of Galilee uh, for years on end, running a commercial fishing business, he knows that the most opportune time to fish is at at night and in shallow water, and yet Jesus tells him to go out in uh, broad daylight in deep water. And so, Peter, this, this is great faith. Jesus, we've toiled all night and took nothing. We've done the strategy. We've run the test. We've done what we know what is right. We don't agree with you, but even if we don't, if you say so, Lord, we will let down the nets. This goes against everything I've learned and experienced in over a decade of fishing, but I will do what you tell me to do if it's you who tells me to. And so, verse 6, so they obey, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And so they would signal to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they filled, came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." And the radical call of Jesus, just looking at the exchange between Peter and Jesus here, in, in the radical call of Jesus, we must live in reality. Peter does something very profound here. Jesus provides the miraculous catch of fish. Uh, the fish are coming in. There's kind of a struggle to get them in the boat. The boat's filling with water. And here, instead of helping with the rest of the catch of fish, Peter turns to Jesus and falls down at his knees and says, get away from me, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, this is actually something that Scripture screams from the top of its lungs. It's this idea that when ordinary common men come into contact with the presence of their creator, they go down to their knees. 
when sinful, unholy men come into contact with the presence of their sinless, holy creator, they fall down to their knees. This is a common red thread throughout the scriptures. And so when Peter, a sinful man, falls down in the feet of Jesus, he, he, he reiterates this common red thread. And, it, and we, if you remember, uh, th- this is something we, we would know. In Isaiah chapter 6, if you, remember, if you remember in the call of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is getting this throne room vision of heaven, and he's seeing the seraphim and the cherubim flying around. And, 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 so, and, 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 the, uh, and he's just seeing this heavenly vision, if you will. Do you know what the first words out of Isaiah's mouth are? He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. That's the first words out of his mouth when he sees the holy presence of God. And so we know the account. The seraphim flies down and touches Isaiah's lips with a charcoal uh, being held by tongs and says, behold, you are cleansed. Your sins are atoned for. And, And in that account, in that calling, after that cleansing, God extends a question. He got, the Lord God Almighty says, Whom shall I send to be my messenger? Whom shall I send to proclaim my word to the people? And you know the first words out of Isaiah's mouth? He says, Here am I, Lord. Send me. It's as if God is on this mission of turning a sinful man's woe is me's into here am I, send me's. It's as if God is on this redemption or this redeeming mission to turn sinful man's woe is me's into here am I, send me. And so as Peter began to see Jesus in a different light, he began to see himself in a different light as well. When we're radically called by Jesus, we must be willing to confess the reality that he is everything and that apart from him, without him, I am nothing. We must be willing to confess the reality that I need Jesus on my best days just as much as I do on my worst days. And so tonight, can I honestly say that I need salvation, that I need it. I, I don't just want it. It's not an afterthought that I'm going to think about when uh, you know, I go to the next funeral or when my grandparents are on their deathbed or whatnot or whenever, when I may find myself on my deathbed. It, it's not just something I need when I die, but you know, I honestly need it here tonight now. Not an afterthought, but a daily constant breath and a foundation in which I stand on. Do I need salvation? Can I honestly say that in my heart? Tonight, is Jesus truly my master? Is Jesus truly my Lord? Is Jesus plan B for my life, or is he plan A? Because if he's plan B, he could be any other plan in the world, but is he plan A? Is he the thing uh, that comes first? Is he the main priority? When I, when, and, and maybe for some young people here, how many of us have goals in this room? If you have goals, right? Okay, especially here. When you write out your goals, is Jesus involved in that? Is Jesus the outward uh, you know, result of, well, as, as long as I kind of stay steady in my career, then Jesus is kind of going to be the outward, uh, direct outside result of my goals? Or is he the, pl- uh, the paper in which I write my goals on? Because there's a huge difference. Am I allowing Jesus to be the paper in which I write my goals on as opposed to be something of an afterthought when I achieve whatever success I want to achieve after? 
Do I need salvation tonight? Is Jesus the paper in which I write everything on? Now, there are two things I thoroughly enjoy about Jesus' response back to Peter. So you see that Jesus says something to Peter. Peter says something back to Jesus. And now in this account, Jesus has a unique opportunity to respond back to Peter. And there's two things that I thoroughly enjoy uh, about Jesus' response back to Peter. Number one, Jesus does not do what Peter tells him to do. Like, did you catch that in the text? When, when, when in, in our common day and age, when we would pray and we say, Lord, take this from me or get away from me or, or uh, and whatnot, uh, how does Jesus answer? How does Jesus respond? Peter's saying a very similar thing. It's, Lord, Lord get away from me, depart from me, break ties. We've got to get away. Uh, maybe you walk in the boat, uh, walk out of the boat. Maybe you just throw me overboard, zap me, kill me, destroy me. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. But we've got to break ties because I am unholy and you are holy. I am a sinful man. You are the Holy One of Israel. We've got to break ties. And yet Jesus does not do what Peter tells him to do. And secondly, rather, in Jesus' response, he actually welcomes the sinner. He embraces the sinner. He embraces Peter for who he truly is and calls him to a new life. Verse 10 So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men alive. Jesus looks at Peter, maybe even smirks a smile, and he says, Peter, you have no idea what I have in store for you. Peter, your life's about to be changed forever. One commentator put it this way. He said, the same power that prompted Simon Peter to fall down at the feet of Jesus now lifts him up into God's service. Church, the same power that prompted Simon Peter to fall down at the feet of Jesus now lifts us up into God's service. And the radical call of Jesus, we must not only live in reality, we also must be changed and transformed by Jesus himself. Don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid, church. From now on, you will be catching men alive. Jesus would call Peter the fisherman to become Peter the fisher of men. Now, that word catching in verse 10, is a, the Greek word for that is the Greek word zogreo, and it literally means to catch alive. Uh, and so it's this idea of first century prisoner of war. It has a lot of first century prisoner of war context. And again, can I get a show of hands of how many of you have either served in the military or have family members that have served in the military? Can we raise our hands real quick? Okay, so we have, we have a fair understanding. Thank you for your service or your family member's service um, and whatnot. But we, we have a very good understanding here tonight, I'd say, of what it means to be a prisoner of war. And, and so for those of us who don't really know what a prisoner of war is, it's, 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 it's you're fighting for your country. So in this context, you're fighting for the United States of America, and you're fighting one of their enemies, right, or one of our enemies. And so that might be somewhere off in the Middle East or somewhere uh, in, in other parts of the world, but what we typically think of the Middle East, and so let's say you're fighting ISIS or the Taliban, right? Uh, and you're, you're fighting against them, and you're taken captive as a prisoner of war by the enemy, and so they now get to do whatever they want to do with you. Uncensored, unfiltered, right? And so that's the idea that Jesus is using. He uses this specific word, Peter, from now on, you will be catching men alive. You're bringing them 
back to me and allowing me to do with them what I wish to do with them. Peter, just as you were changed by my presence, bring them to me and I will change them by my presence. As you've been changed, so I want to change others. I want to impact others. So the question becomes, what if I don't have a job like Peter? What if I'm not a a blue-collared worker, just a good old country boy? What if I'm not a commercial fisherman? What if I don't work outside in the weather? What if I'm more of a white-collared executive uh, behind a desk every day and I make phone calls? And what, what if I'm just not exactly in the same occupation or trade as Peter? And I have to say, in, in studying for this, the gospel accounts show that Jesus still calls the farmers to sow the seed of the kingdom. He calls merchants to tell men about the pearl of great price. He calls carpenters to add to his house, the church. He calls physicians, even. He calls doctors. He calls physicians to work with the great physician in healing lost souls. And so whatever our earthly interests be, whatever our careers be, our social classes, our identities that we kind of attach to on this planet— Uh, Jesus calls us to change through the refocusing of the center of our life. And so, sermon's not over, but church, what lies at the core of your identity? And and here's just a quick test for you. Next time you, uh, think about the last time that you met somebody that you didn't know before. You stuck out your hand to shake their hand and said, hi, I'm so-and-so. How did you introduce yourself? We don't usually think about that, right? But the way we introduce ourselves is usually the identity that we take on. Hi, I'm so-and-so. Did you ever say that you were a Christian first? I have to say that being held accountable for the entire congregation, I've not been very well at that. But can we actually say that we're Christians first? If we've been bought by the blood of Jesus, if we've been sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, if we've been adopted, if we've been chosen, if we've been redeemed, if we've been sealed by God himself, would we not, why would we not lead with that first? Are we Christians first? And then someone's relative, and then someone's coach, and then someone's ball player, and then someone's leader then someone's follower. Are we Christians first, then our tagline? Am I a citizen of heaven, or am I just an American citizen? But I imagine that's how the early church lived. It says Christians first, right? It's this idea, what you see in the early chapters of the book of Acts are, are, are people who have been converted to following Jesus and now they're willing to plunder their property for the sake of someone else uh, being blessed. They're willing to lay down anything and everything that they can at the apostles' feet and let the apostles distribute to anyone who has a need. And it's because they knew whose they were and they knew who they were. And so in the radical call of Jesus, we must not only live in reality, we must not only be changed and transformed by Jesus, but we must live a life of surrender moving forward. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter and the apostles, or Peter, Andrew, James, and John had been kind of following Jesus on this part-time basis, this, what we would think of in, in the corporate world as 20, 25 hours a week, just kind of here and there as we can, fill in as needed. But now Jesus is calling them to a more full-time discipleship, maybe even 60 hours, push, maybe even pushing 80 hours a week, all the time, constant. And so 
Luke tells us they left everything behind and followed after him. And so the question becomes, what does everything mean for them? And as we're kind of looking through this, I want, to, want you to consider, what is everything to you? What does it mean to leave everything behind for you? And so, again, we're talking about blue-collared fishermen here, and so every indication in Scripture suggests these fishermen had a very lucrative fishing business. And so if you notice in this account, they had more than one fishing boat to use. And so let's just kind of put this together in, in white-collar business terms. They had multiple pieces of equipment, okay? In Mark chapter 1, we're told that James and John actually had hired servants. So you have multiple pieces of equipment. You have multiple people working for you. Uh, and also you had contribution towards the ministry of Jesus. The mother of James and John actually helped fund Jesus' ministry. We find that in Luke chapter 8, Acts chapter 12, when Peter's released from the prison miraculously by the angel, and he goes and stays at the mother of James and John's house, right? Uh, and, and so you have multiple pieces of equipment, you have multiple people working for you, and you have, you're able to give uh, and, and help the ministry of Jesus. And so it seems as though these people have some money, they have some wealth, they have some, uh, a livelihood being built for them. And on top of that, this is just kind of freebie, uh, if you remember back in John chapter 18, verse 15, uh, you remember Peter and John are following Jesus towards the high priest court um, and whatnot. And we know Peter stays behind in the courtyard because he, he denies Jesus around the charcoal fire. Okay? Uh, but John is actually the one that's able to go into the high priest court. And so it's possible that John's family may have had some business dealings with the high priest. Now, that's not black and white written out, but that's kind of, that's kind of inferred by some scholars and whatnot. But, but regardless, these fishermen had something to, to contribute to society with. This is, they were viewed a certain way in the marketplace. They, they were seen by people in a certain light, and yet now Jesus is calling them to full-time discipleship. And in answering the call of Jesus, they were compelled to leave their boats, their nets, the miraculous catch of fish that they had just worked so hard to get in the boat, everything that they valued, a steady income, financial security, their own homes, everything that they knew before, and the social approval of their loved ones. You think about that. We're told that when they get to shore, they leave everything behind and follow Jesus. They don't go home and check in with their families. Think about this too. In the first century, everything is in a tribal family unit. Uh, you don't do anything without doing it with the rest of your family. It's a very tight-knit, familial, uh, community-based mindset. It's, so, it's, bash, it's actually probably most, the most backwards mindset to that of the American individualistic culture today. In America today, we're very individualistic. We like to say, uh, it's just, it's me time. I'm going to do me. We don't really know our neighbors so much anymore. It's kind of, it's kind of been a cultural trend unless you do like really good efforts to know your neighbors. Um, I didn't know everybody in my neighborhood growing up. Um, that's just been my experience. And yet here in the first century, family is everything. And yet when they get to shore without checking in with their spouse or their loved ones, they were willing to leave the social approval behind to follow after Jesus. And if we are ever interested in following Jesus, we must be willing to abandon everything if that's what it takes. Now, I, I do need to clear the water here. God may not be calling us to literally give up everything we own or have in our possession right now. But God is calling us to a willingness to follow him 
even if it costs me that car, even if it does cost me the house, even if it does cost me the social approval of my friends or my peers, my loved ones, my family, God is calling us to a willingness to follow him even if it costs me my life. So as we look to close, I said we'd come back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer here. Because Jesus' call in our lives is radically different, there will be trials and temptations. It's to that, similar to that of swimming upstream and the current trying to pull us under, suck us under, maybe drown us and whatnot, and yet there will be trials, there will be temptations, there will be obstacles as we seek to live in reality, so we seek to be changed and transformed. The Bible calls that sanctification, uh, that the sanctification process, being changed and transformed by Jesus himself and living a life of surrender. There will be obstacles, there will be trials, there will be temptations. And so, what is the deadly enemy of the church today? What does the church have to fight against today? And we, we come up with a lot of different things. Some of us have become so politicized that we think it's Republican or Democrat, and that's really just a distraction. Uh, and, and I want to offer something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said back in 1937, living under the Nazi regime. And might I say this, just caveat this a little bit, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1930s never said that the deadly enemy of the church was anyone with uh, a swastika on their arm. Think about that for a second. He never said anything about a deadly enemy of the church being someone with a swastika, anyone with political propaganda. It wasn't ever anybody uh, who had an ugly little mustache or spoke a German accent or uh, executed millions of Jews, although that is not condoned, right? That's not the deadly enemy of the church, though. He says, cheap grace. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. He says, today we are fighting for costly grace. What does he mean by cheap grace? Cheap grace is the, means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. He says, grace alone does everything they say, and so everything can remain as it was before all for sin could not atone. We know Martin Luther, a Protestant Reformation leader, Martin Luther even chimed in on that thought. He said, Luther said, well, then let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He says today we're fighting for costly grace. He elaborates. He says costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it a man will gladly go and sell all that he has it's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. And it's the call of Jesus Christ, at which the faithful disciple leaves his nets and follows him. I'll make room for song leader here. I have a closing illustration for us. Um, I'll come back and get that here in a little bit. I stand before you with a, uh, a drag net, throw net. Um, I probably could have untangled it a little more, but you see, here we are. 
Uh, how many of you have been fishing before and used this, maybe with trot lining or just whatnot? Okay, few. My dad's been asking for this for a while, um, and he's two and a half hours away, so I can kind of get away with holding on to it. Um, but he's like, Todd Ryan, can I, can I please have that dragnet back? I, I need it. I, I want to go catch some fish with it. And, uh, and I just keep responding. I keep telling him, Dad, I'm, I'm trying to catch souls with it. I'm trying to catch people with it. So uh, I'm going to hold on to it. I have a scriptural backing behind it. So, But nonetheless, you look at this net. And for the sake of illustration, it's tangled, it's messy, it's dirty, it's been used, it's grimy. There's things that you know could be in it. I probably need to put some hand sanitizer on after I'm done touching this uh, and whatnot before I shake anyone else's hand in here. Um, but nonetheless, this, this kind of represents our life, though. Do, do, does, does anyone in here probably feel like this is your life a little bit? All messed up, tangled, dirty, grimy, maybe traumatic. I want us just to consider this, though, with this illustration. In the first century, what does this represent for, the, for Peter, Andrew, James, and John? This represents absolutely everything, right? This net represents how they make their money, how they provide for their family, how they're seen within uh, the realms of the marketplace and in society. This is what people see them as. This is their identity almost. And yet they find themselves tangled. Well, it's a little untangled now. But this represents every good day and every bad day that led them up to the point in which Jesus calls them on the Sea of Galilee and then which they leave behind and follow after him. I just want to propose that this is what the radical call of Jesus looks like. It's, it's living in reality. It's acknowledging what's in your net. That trauma, that baggage, that heartache, uh, maybe that family member that may have chosen something over you as a kid, maybe that parent or family member that may have abused you. Whatever's in your net, whatever makes your net dingy and broken and whatever we're holding on to, that's kind of what the net resembles. It represents who you are every day from the time you were born up until now. And so what is your net composed of? What is your net? What's in your net? If we're going to follow Jesus faithfully and radically, we've we got to acknowledge what's in our net. We've got to live in reality. And as we become changed and transformed by the blood of Jesus... We simply extend it out to him, and we drop it at his feet. And as we live lives of surrender, we step over it and follow faithfully as we get to shore. Now, church, where are we? I don't have a clock, so I don't know what time it is, but... Where are we? Are you willing to take the time tonight to make sure that you are living in reality, that you're, kind of, you're more aligned with Jesus and on mission for Jesus? Is there a conflict in your family that needs to be resolved? Are you looking to resolve that conflict in your family? I, I just spent the last week in a lot of pain because my grandmother uh, is, is kind of is very sick. She's on oxygen. She can barely get out of bed and cook for the family like she's always loved to. Causes some conflict with, with your sisters trying to take care of her. Am I willing to go forward and have that conversation, right? Am I willing to go with that, that family member and resolve conflict so that we can have a peaceful Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever? Am I willing to acknowledge the baggage in my life so that I can heal and, and be made more whole by the blood of Jesus?
what's in your net? Am I willing to be changed and transformed by him? Am I willing to bow at his, in his presence and be changed by him wholly and completely? It, it's not this idea that I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps and make myself a better me, like, the, like culture tries to project this, this kind of idea of self-help. Uh, and it's just, that's just really fatal, I, I've come to realize, because you cannot be the source if you are the problem. You cannot be the solution if you are the problem. Am I willing to surrender my life to him? So tonight, I don't know if, if today's the day you decide you want to be baptized into Christ, follow him more faithfully and more radically, but it's, we're coming to shore here. And so what are you going to do with the call of Jesus on your life? What are you going to do? Are we going to live in reality? Or are we going to be changed by the blood of Jesus? And are we going to surrender our lives going forward with him? If you have a need this evening, I encourage you to come forward as we stand, as we sing.